Welcome to this edition of the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Podcast. I'm Dylan Wiseman. I'm your host, and I'm resident in our San Francisco and Sacramento offices. I'm also the co-chair of Buckhalter's Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Practice Group. We are thrilled today to have uh, Professor Ellen Kreisberg with us from Santa Clara University Law School. Uh, Professor Kreisberg and I go way back to my days as a student at Santa Clara, where she was my trial advocacy professor, and I spent my third year uh, on the national trial team under her very uh, watchful guidance, and I'll forever be grateful for that. Uh, She was the legal commentator for the ABC News podcast, The Dropout, which of course told the story from front to back over multiple, multiple episodes about the Theranos trial. And so we're very fortunate to have her here with us today to talk with us particularly about the so-called trade secret defense that was raised by the Elizabeth Holmes defense team. We have a great podcast for you today. Uh, We have a big crew here. We've got thespians who are helping out today, esteemed lawyers from our San Francisco office, and we've got our panelist, Pete Mack. So if Pete, if you could start out by introducing yourself, that'd be great. Hi, uh, my name is Pete Mack. I work with Dylan in the uh, Trade Secret and Employee Mobility Practice here at Buckhalter, and I am resident in our San Francisco office. Hi, this is Cecily O'Regan. I'm a patent attorney in the San Francisco office. And I'm Jeffrey Judd, and I am a litigator, do a lot of trade secrets work also in the San Francisco office. Uh, so, Professor Kreitzberg, if you could start out by kind of walking us through the, the verdict itself and how that unfolded. Yes, Dylan, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to see you and your work colleagues here and talk about this case, which has captured the imagination of the Silicon Valley. So just by way of a background, we just want to remember that this was a case where it took over three months. The government put on 30 witnesses. Elizabeth Holmes was on the stand for about seven days on direct and cross-examination. And the jury deliberated more than 50 hours in reaching a final determination in this case. And that verdict was a mixed verdict because they found her guilty on four of the charges. They found her not guilty on three of the charges and they were unable to reach a verdict on the remaining counts. Uh, So they really deliberated carefully, thoughtfully and looked at the laws to each individual count in reaching that decision. I appreciate that. And I want to turn our attention to uh, the tie-in for our Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility podcast, which is this Trade Secrets Defense. And so, Pete, can you kind of walk us through uh, the the scope of the the defense as it was raised by Elizabeth Holmes' team? Uh, Yes. Basically, uh, Elizabeth Holmes and her team uh, contended that they had not disclosed the true facts about uh, Theranos, uh, the inability of the Theranos machine, Einstein, to do certain tests, and the fact that they were using off-the-shelf testing equipment from other manufacturers to do those tests. And they claimed that the reason they were not disclosing this uh, to their partners like Walgreens, to their board members, and uh, and others, was that it was to protect uh, Theranos' trade secrets. So when I first heard this, having practiced exclusively in the trade secrets fields for years, I about fell out of my chair because they're putting on this defense in the Silicon Valley, 
claiming that they don't have to be truthful to basically people who they owe a fiduciary duty to, the investors, uh, because of their need to protect so-called trade secrets. And so I, I think that from a, from a tactical standpoint, I was really surprised that they would even attempt to go forward with this defense, given the sophistication of, the, of this particular jury, uh, being right there in San Jose, where everyone uh, throughout their careers has dealt with various issues in intellectual property and non-disclosure agreements. So, Professor Kreisberg, can you kind of walk us through um, how, how well was this defense received uh, as they were trying to present it to the jury? Well, obviously the jury didn't buy it but as a result of their uh, convictions and their verdicts of guilty, but it was really more complicated than that because what she was testifying was being protected as a trade secret weren't really secrets at all. She would uh, put in the, in the column of trade secrets everything from we didn't want to tell them we were using third-party machines, that that was a trade secret. When she would fail to disclose financials, that was a trade secret. So she put in that trade secret bucket everything that she failed to disclose to investors, to partners, and to corporate um, collaborators uh, in order to, to justify either their non-disclosure or their false disclosures. And, and Pete, can you give us some context on the legal definition of a trade secret and why uh, the approach that was taken by the defense team doesn't meet the legal standard. How are you slice or dice it? Right. Um, the, uh, the definition of a trade secret under the Uniform Trade Secrets Act as applicable in California and also under the, the federal act is that it is information uh, that derives independent economic value, actual or potential from not being generally known to the public or to persons who can obtain economic value from the disclosure or use of that information and is the subject of efforts that are reasonable under the circumstances to maintain the secrecy of the information. And here, uh, the Holmes version of a trade secret really fails under both prongs of the definition. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about how they were trying to use this defense and how they were trying to shield information from certain investors, which takes us to a great juncture where we can invoke our thespians to read some of the trial transcripts that we have uh, obtained from the Holmes trial. So on this very first point, why don't we go ahead? Uh, Cecily, are, are you ready to be Elizabeth Holmes? I'm ready. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. With that, let's proceed with the transcript. Okay. And the idea of trade secrets was top of mind to you in this time period. Did I hear you testify to that? It was. Okay. And you were asking Mr. Doyle, the in-house counsel, to put together a policy so that people understood what they could do, what they couldn't do, and what they should do, correct? I did. Okay. And part of that policy says, quote, a trade secret is information, is simply any information that A, the owner makes reasonable efforts to keep secret, and B, has economic value because it is not generally known to the public or a competitor, close quote. Correct? Yes. 
Now, Walgreens was not your competitor, correct? They were not. They were your partner. They were. We were worried about them potentially getting into the lab business directly, but they were a partner. They were your partner, and you had a confidentiality agreement with them. We did. So this is a really good example of how they tried to use this defense where uh, among your partners, uh, you can have confidentiality agreements, of course. And if, if there was some risk that, that Walgreens eventually would get into this business, they could sue for breach of the confidentiality agreement. So they, they were using that whole excuse for not being forthright to Walgreens, even though they had a non-disclosure agreement with them that gave them the ability to be completely open and forthright. And, and furthermore, one of the points that struck me as really odd about this is, is that practically speaking, even if you don't have a non-disclosure agreement, you can still talk about trade secrets in the in generalities without any risk of waiver. So, I mean, they, they could have described all sorts of things without getting into the specifics and still but and still complied with their fiduciary obligations to their investors. So uh, I want to talk a bit about part of the problem that they, they did experience was they they had confidentiality agreements with these partners and they still were not truthful with them. And then they tried to say they were protecting their trade secrets. So let's go to our second excerpt. And part of the measures you and Mr. Doyle are discussing here are requiring visitors to Theranos facilities to sign a CDA. That's a confidential disclosure agreement. It is. And another one you're talking about requiring all vendors or other potential business partners to sign an entity CDA prior to commencing discussions of any Theranos confidential information. Correct? Yes. And so your policy contemplated disclosing confidential information to partners with a CDA, correct? Yes, yes. And in fact, you told Walgreens many confidential aspects of your business, correct? We did. And you told pharmaceutical companies many confidential aspects of your business, correct? Yes. Because you had an agreement with them, where they agreed to keep your secrets, correct? We had a confidentiality agreement with them. Yeah, and you were comfortable with that. I was. Again, this, this goes to the point, if, if they have a confidentiality agreement with them, they, they should have been telling them the trade secrets. They should have let them know exactly, should have been candid and forthright, but they weren't, and tried to use the trade secrets as, as a basis for not being truthful with people to whom they owed a fiduciary duty. I was just kind of shocked by this. Um, so let's, Pete, if you could also guide us along on the, the second major element that warrants discussion about, um, about protecting trade secrets and, and conferring a competitive advantage. Right. The, the, second, the second prong of the trade secret definition not only do you have to keep it secret, but it has to be information that would uh, provide a competitive advan advantage if it were known. Uh, and, and and the bottom line is, uh, there's no competitive advantage to be gained by, from false information. I mean, a good example is if you gave someone a customer list with a bunch of fake names on it, they couldn't use that 
to compete with you and there's no advantage there or or here uh they were failing to disclose the fact that um their own machine could not do all of the testing and that they were using off-the-shelf machines from other companies to test that's not a secret any lab in the country can go out and buy a siemens testing machine and do their own tests that's just not a secret that confers a competitive advantage to theranos yeah so, so, under, so under both prongs of the test yeah so no employee could leave theranos and go to a competitor and try to cash in on the fact that well, you know, I'm giving you information that's going to that's going to confer a competitive advantage. This this actual information showed that that their equipment wasn't capable of doing what what they said it was doing, and that they were basically misleading other investors. That's not a trade secret. That's that may be something that they wanted to conceal. Uh, Professor Kreisberg, do you have a comment on this? Well, when you talk about the concern about employees leaving, that also doesn't ring true in the Theranos model because Theranos showed they had hired a very aggressive law firm. And in fact, when right. some of the young employees had left, they had members of that law firm go to their homes. They were using very intimidating tactics. Uh, and they showed that they know how to and were willing to use litigation, legal coercion and intimidation to make sure people didn't disclose what they shouldn't disclose. So that was the other part where the trade secret mm -hmm. defense really fell apart. Yeah, that's an excellent point as well. So why don't we go to the, the part of the closing where uh, I thought the closing was was really well done, where uh, the government ex basically tears apart uh, the last vestiges of the so-called trade secrets defense. So I don't think you should accept the fact that trade secrets give her permission to make false statements about it. But it's actually more than that. The use of unmodified third-party devices, the one they made no changes to, was not a trade secret at Theranos. That was just a secret. At Theranos, they just didn't tell people that they were using third-party devices to test blood because it was inconsistent with the narrative that they were pitching. You've heard evidence in the trial about secretive practices at Theranos, and a lot of the evidence and testimony from victims has related to information that was withheld from them, facts that they did not get, things that Ms. Holmes did not tell them. The defense would like you to believe that in every case, every time information was withheld from a victim, it was simply a good faith effort to protect the company's trade secrets. That defense doesn't hold water and here's why. First of all, the evidence shows you some contradictory or irrational practices here. You saw that Theranos was quite aggressive in getting employees and others to sign CDAs or confidential disclosure agreements. That was the primary mechanism or a primary mechanism that the company used to protect its confidential information. The draft policy that Ms. Holmes read that was introduced into evidence specifically highlighted the use of CDAs and noted that that was an acceptable approach. So there was no need to deceive investors or anyone else when simply having them enter into these agreements would have been adequate to protect the company's intellectual property. You saw in the evidence that critical evidence was withheld 
even from those under CDAs or other obligations to keep secrets. For example, Walgreens and the board of directors who had a duty and an incentive to keep Theranos' secrets still were not told the full extent of the company's reliance on third-party devices. That's because this wasn't about protecting trade secrets. A trade secret, as you've heard, is about protecting how a business does something. It's not about hiding what a business cannot do. Right. Um, Professor Kreisfeier, I wanted to get your uh, kind of final impressions on how the jury received this defense and did they understand it? And did could you did you gather that they were confused by it or troubled by it? Uh, were, they, were they buying into some or part of this? I'd like to know. So first, the jury, who was there for an incredibly long period of time, it was over three months, paid incredibly close and careful attention to every witness, every argument, every moment that they were in the courtroom. You didn't have the usual um, yawning or, or distraction by any of these jurors. And also to remember that there were other defenses that they coupled in with this trade secret defense. Really, they were they were talking about her being this broad visionary uh, and, and the government's theory that she was really a controlling opportunist. So the jury clearly rejected the idea of, of trade secrets. Even the, the counts that she was found not guilty on had nothing to do with trade secrets. They had to do with the patients that were involved. And I think there was a reality that they accepted that she did care about patients and had this vision that she believed in, but her vision was really uh, never caught up with the reality of what was possible with the machines. Excellent. Well, Professor Kreisberg, uh, our thespians, and Pete Mack, I want to thank everyone for their time and effort today. It certainly has been a pleasure. And with that, this is uh, episode 15 of the Occulter Trade Secrets and Employment Mobility Podcast.